This is Kurt Flewelling, and those of you that listened to me last show, I promised you um, I, the Peloton thing really, uh, really bugged me, and I ran out of time. I, I raced through it in about five minutes, and I, I really felt like exploring this a little deeper. So I promised you at the end of last show, I was going to pick this up again. Um, no fear. All you impeachment junkies, we'll get to that a little bit and um, some interesting uh, Donald Trump news. But uh, I did want to explore the Peloton thing a little slower and a little deeper, um, because if you've listened to my show for any length of time, you will understand that I am all about how we communicate to one another. And my assertion these days, and I'm sure you would agree with this, nobody's listening the the art of listening is gone. People, particularly young people, again, I'm not that old. I'm in my 50s. I'm not old. I'm not young. But young people, they're like, get to the point. They want news stories. If they even want news stories, they want news stories to be only uh, so uh, brief and uh, not very long in nature get to the point, give me the salient uh, points, and that's all well and good. But when we don't listen and we polarize and we size people up in two seconds and say, you're one of them or you're one of them, our ears shut, nobody gets educated, nobody listens, and it's really, it's terrible because the truth suffers. And quite frankly, as we're seeing with the impeachment process, um, it's, it's easier to pull the wool over someone's eyes if they're not paying attention and delving a little deeper into the issue. So um, I did want to hit the Peloton thing again, a little slower, a little deeper. Um, the title of the article that I was referring to in the last show, it says Peloton's rise has coincided with a larger, more pervasive culture of wellness, one overrun with privilege and high-end consumerism. And it's kind of timely because I was out to dinner with a bunch of uh, acquaintances and friends last night, and this subject came up, and I didn't tell them that I was going to uh, do a radio show on it. I just wanted to sit back and listen to what people knew about the subject and if it was meaningful. And uh, it's been going on for a week, and it's still people are still talking about it. So just to get you up to speed, there has been a um, kind of a internet backlash against um, Peloton uh, for promoting this high-end stationary bicycle. And I can read you some of the excerpts of the uh, article, but they're taking shots at rich people. It's it's another eat the rich, um, slam the rich, kill the rich type of uh, um, issue in which they're slamming this thin, beautiful woman with uh, beautiful artwork in the back and long floor to ceiling uh, uh, windows. And, and her husband has the temerity to um, want to buy her a, a Peloton stationary bike, which is several thousand dollars. And the article goes on to, to illustrate how surreal this life is. Um, regardless if this lifestyle or the affording of a Peloton bicycle is is something that is foreign to you or foreign to me. It is certainly not offensive. Um, the makers of this bicycle know their audience, and it is rich people. And if rich people want to take their disposable income and buy a bicycle to nowhere and spin and lose some weight and get in shape, and, you know, the article goes on to slam the husband a little bit, um, calling him sexist for, for, you know, buying his wife a bicycle. Like, what are you implying? He's implying nothing because the, the woman in the commercial uh, wants the bicycle. It's on her Christmas wish list. Um, it's all very nonsensical. And uh, a pervasive culture of wellness is all well and good. You want to eat healthy. You want to jog in the park, get on a stationary bike. That's, that's something that transcends all forms of economic strata. But the next statement, one overrun with privilege and high-end consumerism, is, is, is a, it's a cheap shot. It's trying to knock the rich down. 
It's trying to fault them and shame them because they've earned enough money to have a nice house, have some um, disposable time to jump on a stationary bike, a really expensive one, and get in shape. You know, and, and the, the, the authors of the article are bent out of shape because the average person, whatever that means, can't do that, can't afford that. They're too busy hustling to the train station to go to work. And so in, in some perverse way, they want to chastise this company and the people that are buying Peloton bicycles as as being the recipients of high-end um, or the people contributing to high-end consumerism. Which in reality, this is the United States of America. We are a capitalistic society. If we want to consume and we have the means to consume and we're not maxing out our credit cards and paying high interest on them, so what? And I, I always take offense to people that try to take shots at companies that market yachts or high-end clothing or cars or whatever to rich people and then try to shame rich people for feeling, uh, you know, to make them feel bad that they're on a really nice bicycle. Um, I, I've said this before and people get rubbed the wrong way when I say it, but we have the richest poor in the world in our country. And the reason I bring that up is I can assure you there are literally billions of people around the world. If they saw the, um, things or let's just say here exercise equipment or exercise regiment of the average poor person in this country if they do exercise they would be envious they would feel like that's not fair um it's all relative and i have always asserted if if you want to penalize someone uh and chastise them and put them in a box because they have a cadillac Tomorrow, you're going to be on the chopping block because you can take that as extreme as you would like to take it. Somebody could could tap you on the shoulder and say, why do you have a Toyota Camry? Do you know if you bought a Ford Festiva, you would save so much more money and you could be giving that money to the poor? And then the poor guy in the Ford Festiva, he's looked at as a, um, as a consumerist, if you will by the guy that's got to ride his bicycle to work. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, where this goes? It's, it's, it's not a good thing to take inventory of what other people do with their money, unless, of course, it is ill-gotten gains and they're doing something nefarious with their money that is hurting um, society or, or your fellow man. This lady's not hurting anybody by getting on a stationary bike. And if you're offended that she has really nice artwork in her home, and her husband gives her that for a Christmas present, then I think you should probably take your own inventory and and see if you have some covetousness going on in, in your, you know, mind. And you know, I, I think this is a big to do about nothing. And um, the, some of the excerpts from the article are just very, very disturbing. Um, you know, it, it, it just, you know, it says, um, there's always been plenty to mock most of all, the idea that the biggest hurdle in life is waking up early enough to pedal uninterrupted on a bike going nowhere. You know, I, I said this at the dinner last night when people were talking about this. If you want to use someone on a stationary bike that has fine artwork behind them and they have uh, unlimited time to uh, fritter away to, to, you know, get on a bike for two hours to improve their health, um, if you want to use it in the context of teaching your kids or your grandkids um, that not everybody, uh, if, if they're complaining, so to speak, in this privileged first world that we live in, and they're complaining about where they live or what mom's making for dinner and this sucks and whatever, if you want to, if you want to use some of the shallowness of this, if you will, to to prove a point that there are more lofty, substantive things in life that we should be thinking about, particularly spiritual things. I get that, but this is not this is not where you do it. The, the, these subjects are are very much uh, mutually exclusive. They, the woman on the bike, it has nothing to do with with somebody that has to that doesn't have the time or the money 
to sit on a bike for two hours. It, it's not her problem um, unless she's doing something illegal, nefarious to, to keep her neighbor down and, um, you know, create a, a situation where her neighbor can't make more money or can't marry a guy that makes money. Um, it, it's really a, a very twisted thing that, that um, these people are taking shots at, um, as it says here, uninterrupted on a bike going nowhere. Um, so it, it doesn't, it, it just rubs me the wrong way. Um, and, you know, I, I, the eat the rich thing has been on the table for years. And, you know, uh, I mean, you, you've all heard it, but, um, you know, when's the last time that a, uh, you ever got a job from a poor gentleman or a poor lady? Um, people that are rich in this country put up risk capital to start entities to employ people, increasing the tax base within that community. And as Ronald Reagan said, trickle-down economics works. Um, it's been demonized uh, as an oversimplistic way of looking at economics, but it's simply factual. People don't get money out of thin air. And if they do get it from government grants or whatever, um, sometimes that works, oftentimes it doesn't. So the best way to, um, as, as Ronald Reagan, again, I've quoted him three times this morning, but um, said, a, a rising tide floats all boats. So if the rich guy that everybody seems to hate these days doesn't put up the risk capital, then there is no company. There is no employee of those companies. Um, the employees don't buy a hot dog on the corner from a, a small businessman that's running a hot dog stand. And so it goes. It trickles up. It trickles down. It's a real good thing. So hating the rich and having animus for the rich is not a good thing. And we we discussed on this show uh, many shows ago about Bernie Sanders' problem with, with the rich. And um, we chronicled Job, uh, arguably a, a uber-rich man in the Bible, and God calls him a righteous man. Now, to a lot of people, that does not compute. If you're in the hood and you're struggling to make it, and the people you're voting for are are propagandizing and and just feeding you a line of goods about how rich people are evil and poor people are great. Um, that book of Job doesn't make a lot of sense to you because in your world it does not compute that a rich man can be a righteous man. In reality, people that are righteous could be rich or poor. And you and I both know there's plenty of poor people that are scoundrels. So what one makes and what one brings home and what one saves um, doesn't say a lot about that person. Now, the Bible does clearly say the love of money is the root of all evil. But that is, as you know, one of the most uh, misquoted verses in the Bible. Uh, people that want to demagogue and eat the rich often say the love, or, or excuse me, money is the root of all evil, which it indeed is not. Money is a good thing. Um, many of the churches that we have out there uh, forward the gospel internationally. They support missions all over the globe. And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, that costs money. So um, I don't like articles like this um, about the, you know, the backlash of um, how these people are offended by um, beautiful people on stationary bikes. It has nothing to do with um, anything. And it's really, it's just quite unfortunate. So I wanted to uh, pursue that a little bit more um, as we move along here. Uh, the next article that I found to be very interesting, and um, it says Trump to sign executive order defunding colleges that fail to fight anti-Semitism. And, um, this kind of got uh, a lot of traction probably a year ago when um, fascistic liberal groups were shouting down conservatives left, right, and crazy on college campuses and creating safe spaces um, and were very much concerned with um, colleges that um, 
fomented or had racist tendencies and and uh, discriminatory tendencies to certain groups, but other groups were not included. <coughs> excuse me in that um, in that category. Uh, and if you are Jewish on a college campus, anything that I'm telling you right now is certainly not news. Um, uh, Anti-Semitism and abuse and uh, intimidation of uh, Jewish students on college campuses throughout the United States is on the rise. It's a very high percentage. It's the most underreported story that you're ever going to not hear. And um, I can tell you a little story after I read this article, but um, it, it's um, kudos to Donald Trump for signing this executive order defunding colleges that fail to fight anti-Semitism. So let me read this. It says, President Trump is expected to sign an executive order that will allow administration to cut funding from colleges and universities that have failed to quell anti-Semitism on their campuses. And let me digress for a second. This is the Donald Trump that the left calls an anti-Semite. Um, the only president in the last nine presidents that have promised um, to make Jerusalem uh, or or for work to get Jerusalem to be recognized as the capital city of Israel. Um, and we can go on and on and on about how Donald Trump has many um, Jewish individuals in his orb, uh, albeit family members or even employees. Um, he is the, the biggest friend of the Jewish man or woman or the uh, Israel that any president could have ever been and to assert that that donald trump is anti-semitic in any way shape manner or form is absolute lunacy but i continue trump's order will be delivered um today which is uh, december 11th the order reclassifies judaism as a race or nationality affording jews title 11 anti-discrimination protections under the 1964 civil rights act the boycott, divestment, and sanction movements calls for cracking down on Israel for its treatment of Palestinians living in Israeli-controlled territories. So many of these um, colleges are very pro-Palestinian and very anti-Semitic in their rhetoric, and they... Um, and Donald Trump wants to put an end to that. It says Congress passed a bipartisan condemnation of BDS, which is the uh, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction Movement, as a movement that promotes principles of collective guilt, mass punishment, and group isolation, which are destructive of uh, prospects for progress towards peace. The BDS movement has gained traction on college campuses in recent years. The movement, along with a rise in anti-Semitic attacks against Jews, has motivated lawmakers on both sides to push for legislation through Congress similar to Trump's executive order. Uh, David Crone, who was chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid, applauded the expected move by Trump, says, I know people are going to criticize me, this Democrat, for saying this, but I have to give credit where credit is due, Mr. Crone says. Um, so this is basically um, a defunding of a university that is really doing, um, that continues to not only do nothing about the anti-Semitism on our college campuses, but um, actually foments such um, hostility towards Jews. And, um, you know, my, my short and sweet story, I uh, visited a college uh, one time that shall uh, remain nameless. And you know how you go to these um go to these rooms where they're promoting all their college groups. Um, when I went to college, there was, you, you know, you, you, you played sports or you were in one club or another. Now it's almost uh, compulsory to be in one activity or another and, and helicopter and um, snowplow parents are always encouraging their little ones to uh, get involved in 22 things and, and, you know, socialize, which I, I'm, I'm all for the socialist social aspect of college, but we are indeed there to get good grades and get a job um, first and foremost. But, um, you know, many people are in four or five groups to the to the detriment of their GPA, which um, I don't think is real logical. But anyway, um, went into a room at this particular college where they offered all sorts of, uh, there were, I mean, just literally hundreds of clubs. 
and each club had a little um little booth if you will some booths were nicer than others and some were you know not much more than a, a piece of cardboard with a crayon on it saying we're the whatever club doesn't really matter chess club uh, chemistry club whatever save the world club and i literally almost cried i am not a jewish individual but i am a born-again christian that has um, quite a heart for the state of israel and the jewish people and i almost cried when i went um walked through this uh auditorium if you will looking at all these clubs at this various university and uh, one club was particularly interesting to me and it was um, a pro-arab club which is fine um, it's a free country but the it, it was just very offensive because it was replete it was um, the first thing that really struck me I just noticed things like this it was a well-funded booth or club, if you will, because as I said earlier, many of the um, many of the little booths looked like um, you know some seventh grader threw something together. This was really, really elaborate and really had computers and graphics and a nice velvet um, little thing that uh, you know announced the the various club, but. If you dug a little, and, and um, the the people that were manning the little booth there were very interesting. There were two gentlemen that I'm assuming are of uh, Middle Eastern descent. They were very dark, dark hair. Um, they were dressed in like $500 suits, which again is quite unusual for a 20-year-old college kid. But they were in the back of the booth and they weren't really saying too much. But the front person in the booth that was extraordinarily aggressive, uh, please join this club, please join this club, please join this club, was a six foot tall, beautiful, um, again, assuming Arab uh, woman, very dark complected, dark hair. She looked like a supermodel, absolute supermodel, dressed like she was going to a ball. It was, it was amazing. All the other kids, as I said in the gym, had jeans and sneakers on, and, and she looked like she was ready to go out on the town. And she was the front person. And the two guys were just kind of mumbling in the background. And she was the ultra aggressive person. Please join this club. Please join. Please give me your name and, and phone number and email and join this club. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. And I looked at the rhetoric on the uh, on the pamphlets and the stuff that they were handing out. And it was just absolute flaming anti-semitic propaganda and it was horrible again let me restate what i stated a few minutes ago you want to have an arab club you want to have a chinese club you want to have whatever i don't care this is america but the whole booth the supermodel front woman and the really nice nicely prepared uh, marketing material that was abject lies about the jewish people and uh, illegal occupations and all of this stuff was just really off-putting to me and bizarre. And I'll put the cherry on the Sunday of this story. I, I just kind of walked by that booth with my mouth open like, wow, this is kind of interesting. And then I almost cried. I went past a booth that had a very unassuming, modestly dressed, just girl that was 20 years old glasses hair back very pale and their booth looked again like a, a seventh grader threw it together it had some um you know rhetoric uh, please join the jewish club or whatever and i i'm i'm not getting accurate either name of those two clubs but one was obviously a, a very pro-arab club and the other was obviously a very pro-jewish or israeli club and the sad thing was that those booths were very close to one another and the one booth was was really designed to intimidate that group of individuals that were in the uh the jewish club and it was really sad because the other person in the club promoting the jewish club if you will was like a, a 55 year old middle-aged jewish guy and you could tell he was there 
for support. You know, there was no other adults, if you will, or, or older gentlemen or older ladies in any of these booths. But he was there because this little girl had the courage to have her booth, uh, please join the Jewish club, right next to or very close in proximity to the anti-Semitic Arab club. And it was really, the whole thing was just, you, you had to be there. It was just so sad. The, the, the faces on the two folks in the, the, the pro-Jewish club and the, the really basic, mediocre, uh, just, you know, very humdrum little teeny booth of the Jewish club. And then the high-tech booth with the supermodel outside of it uh, promoting um, just anti-Semitic garbage was just so horrible. And I'm, and I'm, the reason that oh, that story just kind of came to mind or that recollection is when I read this story, that's the first thing I thought of and, and how horrible it must be to be walking around a college campus and just, you know, trying to, you know, get an education and you happen to have a yarmulke on your head and the stress that you have, um, by being hated by a fair percentage of the student body. And um, hopefully, President Trump's um, executive order defunding colleges that fail to fight um, anti-Semitism is, is going to help um, people that not only want to join a club that promotes uh, Israel or a Jewish club, if you will, but just helps the the rank and file student that just happens to be Jewish that wants to walk down the campus to go to math class in peace. And um, if you've ever seen, um, and I have seen these on television and YouTube, you know, debates or student council, um, you know, uh, debates that almost look like they're out of a third world country uh, where a Jewish person is trying to speak and he's being summarily shouted down by just rabid individuals that just the, the hatred for Jews is, is just so dripping from their um, fangs. It's really, it's very chilling. It's very disturbing. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't even have to have any sympathy for the Israeli people to be very disturbed by what you um can very easily see at many college campuses, particularly in the northeastern part of the country. So kudos to Mr. Trump for doing this. And, um, you know, I thought I would uh, relay that to you and some of my experiences. In, in, um, and that was years ago. Uh, it's gotten far worse in, uh, in recent years. So we're going to go to a break. Go over with you was uh, Trump's impeachment. No slam dunk for moderate Democrats. And this is something that I've been talking about on the show quite a bit. And, um, you know, I, I heard Ted Cruz yesterday and I've heard many, um, many folks when they, when they talk about impeachment, they say when Donald Trump is impeached, um, in the house, this will quickly move to the Senate, blah, 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 blah. And that always, um, kind of disheartened me because this is a sham, as many of you know, but it also disheartened me that um, most people think or, or thought or whatever that, that this was a fait accompli that Republicans would vote um, not to impeach the president and um, Democrats would vote to impeach the president. But we have, um, we have continued on this show anyway to talk about the 31 swing districts, Democrats, um, uh, one that President Trump um, largely won um, in 2016. And um, this article speaks to that. Um, it says impeachment, uh, excuse me, impeaching President Trump will be an easy yes vote for many liberal Democrats, but vulnerable moderates face the difficult choice, oppose voters in their districts or their own caucus. Um, and this particular person says, I'm leaning no, Representative Colin Peterson, a Minnesota Democrat, told the Washington Examiner, I want to look at everything. Several Democrats from swing districts interviewed by the Washington Examiner said they had not decided whether to support the two articles of impeachment announced on Tuesday the 10th by Democrat leaders. The articles charged Trump with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The House could vote on the articles um, 
within a week. And let me stop right there. I've heard people say that those articles were chosen very carefully. Um, one being some, in, in my opinion, both being um, utterly ludicrous, but in the eyes and ears of the average voter uh, or average uh, constituent, if you will, um, one may be much crazier and harder to prove than the other. Um, and that was the reason that they were, um, those articles were drawn up. Um, the theory, so it goes, and I don't subscribe to it, I just think it's interesting, is that um, people in these swing districts, and there, you know, 31 happened to be, that's the, that's the magic number that um, Democrats stole back, or excuse me, earned back from Republicans, but Trump won that district. But there, there are a fair amount more that are very razor close, 51 to 49, um, that weren't districts where a Democrat supplanted a Republican, but they are close nonetheless. And and so there's more like 50 seats in in uh, in totality that really are going to have to answer to a lot of voters and, and um, if they vote yes on impeachment. But the theory goes that many of these uh, congressmen and women in these districts will vote for one article and vote against the other. And, and that is a, a typical Washington equivocation. Um, I mean, that you, you couldn't be a, any other animal than a Washington politician to devise a strategy such as this. So in, in one commercial, you could say, I voted against this article because I think you know, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, when, when you're, you know, putting out your commercial in a Democrat area, you could say you've voted for it. So that that's very crafty if that is indeed what these people are going to do. But um, the article goes on to say, um, Peterson predicted only four or five Democrats will likely vote against the articles, which would represent a very small defection out of the 233 House Democrats and would leave plenty of room to pass the articles with a robust margin leaders can showcase. Um, uh, but it does say that um, the politician here, Peterson, says, however, um, the 31 swing district Democrats who must answer to constituents who voted for Donald Trump um, are going to have a tough time doing that. So uh, Peterson is in the 7th district seat straddling Minnesota's western states lines with North Dakota and South Dakota. He's um, And this is listed as a toss-up by many race analysts. Um, Go on here. It says he um, he votes for a vote for impeachment could help end a nearly thirty year career in Congress. So you know, people vote certain ways for all sorts of reasons. Um, it is not unusual for somebody a little long in the tooth that has been a politician for a long time that knows that they're going to retire. They might not be as um, interested in in appearances as somebody else but I, I always do go back to these these freshmen congressmen um it's a good gig as we stated before it's one hundred seventy thousand dollars a year and there's uh, numerous perks in addition to that and each and every time you win because incumbents in in the house of representative win at a staggering percentage uh, is, or, or I should say, get reelected at a staggering percentage. Um, it's something that I don't think they're going to give up um, easily. And, you know, if you saw, and we can talk about it a little bit more in the show, if you saw the rally that Donald Trump had last night, uh, probably about an hour and a half from here, west of uh, where we are in Philadelphia, uh, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, these constituents are just as fired up as they were in 2016, and I'm telling you, um, impeachment and any trial in the Senate is is going to be tantamount to just whacking a big old uh, beehive and um, and and knocking those bees all around. I'm telling you, if if you if you saw Donald Trump on fire last night, um, I, I again, uh, you know, this. Congressman may be correct that they may only get four or five defections. Um, I think conventional wisdom says if they get more, it's certainly not going to be enough to not impeach the president. But you never know. You just never know. Uh, what we pray as believers um, is that the truth will out 
And there's a lot of people that are lying about President Trump and um, Adam Schiff, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Gerald Nadler. And we just pray that their lies are, are not believed. We pray that the people that uh, have D's next to their name uh, are slaves to the truth rather than slaves to their party. But that's a pretty bold prayer. That's a pretty unlikely thing to happen. But we serve a very big God, and the miraculous does happen. So um, article goes on to say some of the most endangered Democrats are steering clear of talking about impeachment, which has flatlined in the polls despite weeks of public hearings. Um, and we've chronicled this gentleman before on the show, Representative Jeff Van Drew over uh, in our neighboring state here, New Jersey. He's a Democrat who is running for re-election in a, in a district that's rated a toss-up. And um, he declined to discuss his likely opposition to the impeachment articles. So in the past, um, he has he's been ahead of this. And now he's saying, honestly, I'm just tired of talking about it, Van Drew said Tuesday. Uh, I'm taking a break. I'm not getting into this um, right now. I'm going radio silent. So the article concludes here. House Democrat leaders said Wednesday they won't formally whip the vote, meaning they will not arm twist their caucus into voting in favor of impeachment articles. Um, that might be because they don't have to, but that also may be window dressing as well. What goes on behind closed doors is certainly um, a lot different than what these Democrat leaders are saying. It says, but the Democrat leadership is not going to let the articles go to the floor without assured passage either. And we've seen that in the past when um, when one side or another bloviates about an issue and they threaten to take it to the floor and then it just doesn't go to the floor. And you know the average person wonders why. Well, it's a very simple reason why. They don't have the votes. Uh, when you have the votes, you take it to the floor. If you don't, you don't. Um, Steny Hoyer, um, Again, political hack. We think this is a vote of conscience, said House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, a Maryland Democrat, very safe state, very safe uh, district. That does not mean that we don't intend to talk to members and explain to them what the Judiciary Committee has done and why they've done it. And uh, so um, this is interesting, though. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I thought I was done. I'm continuing to read on here. Um, only 216 votes will be required to pass impeachment articles. That gives Democratic leaders plenty of cushioning, up to 17 votes if they want to spare some of the most vulnerable Democrats, such as Peterson, Van Drew, and a um, gentleman named Slotkin. Um, but their list of toss-up Democratic incumbents is a long one. The nonpartisan Cook Political Report lists 18 democratically held seats as toss-up races and another 18 democratically held seats as highly competitive. And in an ominous sign for Democrats, a Quinnipiac poll released Tuesday showed slightly more than half of voters oppose impeaching Trump. A group of about 10 Democrats met Monday to discuss seeking a censure vote instead of impeachment. Now, that's something that if the numbers aren't there or those particular um, Democrats are digging being uh, a congressman or woman and they want to continue that um, nice gig, when these numbers start to fall off, if they do, then the censure might be an option. Um, censure is certainly not going to be anything that will be accepted by the rabid left um, and that will be vehemently opposed by the the rabid left. But again, um, if these uh, Democrats in vulnerable dist districts like what they're doing for a living and they feel that they're going to be bounced out after one term, maybe this group of 10 Democrats will expand to 20 Democrats or 30 Democrats. Who knows? The, the vote is um, over a week away. And, you know, um, this move to censure may get some legs. Um, those of us who have met discussed many topics. That one was one of the topics. Representative Josh Gottenheimer, a New Jersey Democrat, said, endangered Democrats have been willing to support impeachment so far. When the House voted to sanction the impeachment proceedings on October 31, all but two Democrats backed the resolution. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, 
um, if I was a betting man, I'd say, um, unfortunately, um, this is going to be quite an embarrassing historical stain on our country if Donald Trump is indeed impeached. Um, the, the numbers and the likelihood looks like that's what's going to happen. And the sad part about that is, you know, those of us that know that this is nonsense are all going to be very much dead and gone when the history books um, just have this in them as far as Donald Trump is concerned. And uh, revisionist history goes on all the time. So it's going to be quite unfortunate that, um, I mean, there, there are plenty of things to criticize Donald Trump on. This is certainly not one of them. And to have this etched in stone in history is really quite horrible. And I'm not a Donald Trump sycophant, if you will. So when I say things like that, it, it really, it does not reek of uh, a partisanship or, or me just being a, um, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, which I am not a Republican. But it, this, is, this is, at the end of the day, this is a lot of things. It's very maddening. It's very interesting to see, you know, Donald Trump go on the stump about this. But at the end of the day, this is just really, really, really sad that um, sad and scary that that this just because one party has numbers that they can do something so egregiously wrong. Um, it, it's just not right. And it's very sad. So we are uh, we're going to take another break here. And at the uh, other side of the break, we can uh, talk about um, again, I probably should have uh, brought this article up. Um, on the back of um, President Trump's executive order uh, defunding colleges for looking the other way with anti-Semitism. Um, this is a story about the Jer Jersey City mayor um, who says that the gunman in this deadly shooting the other day was uh, targeting a Jewish market. So uh, anti-Semitism, ladies and gentlemen, is on the rise, and it's really sad. Um, but this is another article um, that kind of... Uh, chronicles this. It's a very underreported um, underreported uh, incident as far as anti-Semitism is concerned, but um, preliminarily at least, the Jersey City Mayor says that this is uh, what he feels this was. This is Kurt Fulwilling, Reshaping America. We will be right back. We are back here in Reshaping America, and as promised, um, getting to that article, uh, Jersey City Mayor, gunman in deadly shooting targeted Jewish market. <clears throat> The shooters in a fatal gunfight in New Jersey, or excuse me, Jersey City, New Jersey, intentionally targeted the kosher supermarket in which um, uh, a big shootout took place, according to the city's mayor. Six people, including one police officer and two suspects, were killed in the gun battle that unfolded. Um, this was Tuesday, I guess that's December uh, 10th. According to reports, the shooting may have started in a cemetery before the shooters fled to a bodega owned by a Jewish family from Brooklyn, New York. Police later found five of the dead inside the store. While an investigation into the matter is still ongoing, Mayor Stephen Fulop indicated that initial investigations suggest that the um, suspects targeted the market. Based on our initial investigation, which is ongoing, we now believe that active shooters targeted the location. Um, and... They targeted it for one reason, that it was owned by um, Jewish individuals. Um, this is terrible, you know? I mean, you, you expect this, um, unfortunately, in um, more volatile areas of the world, um, in the Middle East. You don't expect this, uh, as they didn't expect it in Pittsburgh um, a while back, a year ago or so, when um, somebody opened fire in a, uh, in a synagogue. But um, this type of stuff is happening, and it's not, I mean, when a bunch of people get killed, it's hard not to report it. But um, these things are happening with a greater degree of frequency. But um, I can assure you, all the, the, um, the more minor forms of anti-Semitism and harassment, particularly as we chronicled before on college campuses or um, right here in Philadelphia, um, stories uh, pop up semi-regularly about people that scrawl um, anti-Jewish graffiti on certain, um, in certain uh, cemeteries or uh, on synagogue walls and things of that nature. So it's, it's something 
that um, is happening. It's happening with more frequency, and it's something in, that's um, just, it's absolutely terrible. It really is just a, a shame. Um, yeah, I, I did want to, uh, on the waning uh, time we have here, I did want to um, discuss an article that I just saw this morning. Didn't really have a chance to research it very much, but um, kind of reminded me of um, during the holiday season, uh, all sorts of, of crazy things start to happen. People, um, Christmas is on assault and you have folks on one side of the aisle um, defending Christmas, defending Jesus Christ, other um, people that believe in this mythical uh, wall of church and state start to do some crazy things and petition townships to the point where the township not only takes down the nativity scene, they take down everybody from every religion's um, uh, scene or whatever they want to put up just because they just can't afford the hassle anymore, the legal hassle, the political hassle. And it's really quite unfortunate. So we we see these things pop up um, in December uh, pretty routinely. But this one um, particularly angered me. This is out of the Washington Post. It says, Church Nativity displays Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in cages, separated at the border. So this, um, I, I don't even know where to go with this. It says, a nativity scene depicted Jesus, Mary, and Joseph as a refugee family separated was displayed Saturday at the Claremont United Methodist Church. Now, I'm going to be really kind um, to the... Um, the pastor of the church, and I'm not, oh, her, uh, Reverend Karen Clark Ristine um, is the church's senior pastor. I'm going to be extraordinarily kind to her, and I am not going to, um, you know, call her names or anything, and that's what we try not to be about on this show. Sometimes things get a little crazy, but um, I am going to chalk up this whole thing to Karen Clark Ristine's colossal ignorance her colossal uh, biblical ignorance, scriptural ignorance, if you will. Um, I'm going to to give her the benefit of the doubt that she is caught up in this scourge of uh, social justice leftism, um, uh, Christian left, if you will, that uh, I've chronicled on this show several times. That is, it's not growing with leaps and bounds, but it is growing. And it's, it's growing um, pretty steadily. And the numbers of Christian leftists or Christian um, uh, folks that are into uh, selective social justice concerns, and I mean that, um, that they are doggedly um, and vehemently on board or fighting one issue and on another, and other issues that are clearly in contrast to the Word of God, they are spookily, is that a word, spookily? They are eerily silent. So um, I'm going to give... Uh, Miss, Ms., Mrs., whatever, Clark, Ristine, the benefit of the doubt that she doesn't know what in the world she's talking about. Um, Mary, Jesus, and Joseph were certainly not refugees. Um, they were never separated and put in cages. And um, to make a comparison to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, to illegal aliens that are separated or not given the rights um, afforded to uh, citizens of the United States is is just it's a shame. It's 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 horrible when people pervert the Bible and use it to forward an agenda. If the agenda is so egregiously amiss, I would not want to be in Jesus's presence and try to explain to him why outside my church. I have um, a depiction of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in three separate cages uh, and, and putting them uh, in the category of refugee, when in reality, it, it, it's, it cannot further uh, be from the truth. They were wandering, um, and they were in search of um, an inn, and, and we, we all understand the story, but to make that pole vault into, uh, I'm a refugee, I'm not wanted, um, and, and to just summarily discount the fact that um, 
illegal aliens have broken the law and Mary and Joseph and Jesus have not broken the law, just a minor, minor detail, in my opinion, um, is, is absolutely absurd. So it says a Southern California church flipped the lights on in its outdoor manger scene Saturday evening to reveal Jesus, Mary, and Joseph as border detainees, each figure isolated in its own chain-link cage with barbed wire top. The nativity displayed from Claremont United Methodist Church, a suburban congregation east of L.A., is raising both praise and ire for its depiction of the biblical story of Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt in the context of controversial U.S. immigration policies. Um, this is absolutely absurd. It, it just really is. The, the nativity is meant to highlight the plight of migrants and refugees, a longtime cause for this 300-member congregation. Um, our intent is to focus on the asylum seekers and the ways they are being greeted and treated and to suggest there might be a more compassionate way to show God's love. I think that as Christians, we have a responsibility to proclaim a narrative that might be counter to what the world thinks. Um, I think we should be very Christ-like to anybody that wants to get into this country, even if they're trying to get in illegally. Um, I don't think we should be inhumane. Um, and I think that's what I think. Um, but to make your point by categorizing Mary and Joseph and Jesus as uh, refugees that are being mistreated and put them in cages is, is just, it's not accurate. It's, um, it's wrong. And it's just, it, I, I'm just out of words and I'm out of time, which is good. So, but um, stuff like this happens quite a bit. And you, um, how do we as Christians greet this? We, um, we try to do what I am trying to do right here. I'm not calling um, this pastor any names love to talk to her. If you encounter somebody that thinks, uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I think that's a, that's a, you know, good thing for her to do. Have a thoughtful discussion with them. Um, but, um, provocative, uh, yes, I agree that we should, um, treat refugees, sojourners, whatever you want to call them with dignity. And, um, but, um, to give them uh, asylum in this country without a proper vetting and a proper procedure, which many, many, many people have gone through for a number of years in order to become American citizens is absolutely crazy. So uh, this has been another uh, chapter of Reshaping American Crew Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>